a bit of a history lesson. We're going to get into some deep things, but I do want a little bit of a review for us. We're going to be in Joshua chapter number 13 today, uh, but in quick review of where we were last week. We were in Joshua chapter 13, verse number 14. Now, the study we're doing and have been doing for now 92 messages, this will be our 92nd message, has been a life lived for God study into the book of Joshua. And it has been incredible what God has revealed to us through this incredible, incredible book. It is loaded with amazing biblical pictures uh, that tie directly to our walk with God. But last week, our message was called A Godly Inheritance. And in that message, we were in Joshua 13, just in verse 14. And in that verse, what it did was it introduced us to the plan that God had for the tribe of Levi, okay? The Levites. And what we saw was um, they, like us, had come from a sinful past, They had fallen prey to their sinful desires. And what we saw was when they were confronted with their failure, they made a wise choice. They chose God over sin. They did what no one else would do. All the rest of the tribes continued in what they were doing. They committed themselves to serving the Lord. And this decision, because of this decision, God gave them a new identity. This set them apart and sanctified them from the rest of the people, that they would be used specifically for the glory of God. And we correlated this to the new identity that God gives us. As we receive Christ as our Savior, we go from being lost, being broken, being undone, to being restored through a relationship with Jesus Christ, through faith in Him. And what's communicated to us as the church in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, it says this, But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praise of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. As a result, we have a new identity. We are seen now. Just like the Levites, listen, we have new responsibilities as a royal priesthood. Now God give them, give them a or give give them, gave them, <laughs> God gave them the responsibility to care for not only fulfilling the law of God, but also caring for the physical things that were on the earth. They were to honor, they were to uplift the two most sacred things that were ever created by human hands, which would be the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle of God. Understand, both of these are representative of the Lord in multiple, multiple ways. There is no more rich picture of, of, of uh, symbolism and, rep- and, and representation than the Tabernacle. It is phenomenal. But that was their responsibility, to care for the tabernacle and to uplift the things of God. And what you'll find is the fact that you and I have similar responsibilities. We are to lift up. Now, the ark is a picture of Christ, but it's also a picture of the Word of God. We are to lift up the Word of God. We are to honor the Word of God, but also the tabernacle. Guess where the tabernacle now is in the church age? The souls of men, right? So we're supposed to care for the souls of men. We have a responsibility to reach this lost and broken world. Again, God has given us new responsibilities. And with those responsibilities, there also becomes a new level of dependency. And we saw that dependency. What happened to them? They were taken out of where they had, we're not going to receive a physical inheritance. What God said is, I'm going to give you a spiritual inheritance. This is going to be one that's going to come directly from the provisions of God. So don't set your affection on something on the world. Set your affections on me, right? There's a picture for you and I. What does it say in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4? Listen to this. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is a picture of the gospel message. Verse 4, listen to this. 
to an inheritance, this is speaking to you and I, to an inheritance incorruptible, not a physical. When you see the word corruptible, it's always talking something on the earth. That's something that can degrade, something that can break down. Incorruptible is always talking about heaven. He says, undefiled, and that fadeth not away. This is what we're to work for, reserved in heaven for you. Here's your inheritance as a royal priesthood. And so after understanding the Levites and the, the plan God had for them to give them this godly inheritance, what we're doing now is we're going to shift back to the two and a half tribes. Now the two and a half tribes, they made a, a, an, an unfortunate choice. And what's happened is we're going to be today looking at the distribution of what they chose for themselves. They chose a specific inheritance for themselves. And our message series this morning, we're starting, it'll be a three-parter, is called an ungodly inheritance. We're going to go from a godly inheritance to an ungodly inheritance. And next, over, the next, over, the next, over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is kind of do a character study. We're going to do a breakdown of each one of the, uh, what's that word you use? Um, uh, forefather. I was going to think I had a really cool word, big word, but I'm not smart enough to know what it is. So we'll use forefather <laughs> for the tribe of Reuben. And his name was Reuben. So this is the firstborn son of Jacob, who was later named Israel. We see the tribes of Israel, they all come progenitor. That's what I was going to say. Progenitor, that's that big word. I'm going to forget it, but that's the one. So everybody be impressed. But man, he's smart. No, I'm not. I just memorized that word. I was like, man, I'm going to use it. Um, but we have the tribe of Reuben. And so we're going to look at Reuben today. What we're going to be doing is actually comparing or looking at his strengths. We're going to look at his weaknesses, and then we're going to look at his legacy. All right, so let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today. For the gift of your word, uh, Lord, I have prayed, I have studied, uh, Lord, I have uh, put my heart into this, and Father, I know that you've spoken to me. I'm confident of that truth, and I'm asking now that you would speak through me. Uh, Lord, would you allow the human element of this message, God, the part that I'm going to take part in, like, just please remove it. Uh, God, don't let me get in the way. Uh, my stumbling tongue, my wandering mind, uh, my inability, Lord, don't let it get in the way of what you want to share with us, God. I do pray that your spirit will take over, uh, God, that we be surrendered to you. And uh, Lord, that you would give us exactly what we need. Help us to have ears to hear that we might hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we'll be in verses thir chapter 13, verses 15 through 23. It says, And Moses gave unto the tribe of, children, tribe of the children of Reuben inheritance according to their families. And their coast was from Eror, that is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the city that is in the midst of the river, and all the plain of Medaba, uh, Meheshbon, and all their cities that are in the plain, Devon, and uh, Bemoth Baal, and Beth Baal Maom. Uh, and Jahaz, if I'm ruining these names, I apologize. Uh, Jahaza and uh, Kedemoth and Mephath and Kerjathaim and Sibma and Zareth Shahar in the Mount of the Valley and Beth Peor and Ashtoth Pisgah and Beth Jeshimoth and all the cities of the plains and all the kings of Sahon, king of the Amorites, they which reigned in Heshbon from Moses smote, uh, which Moses, whom Moses smote with the princes of Midian, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, which were dukes of Sahon dwelling in the country. Balaam, also the son of Beor, the soothsayer, did the children of Israel slay with a sword among them that were slain by them. That's in Numbers chapter 31. And the border of the children of Reuben was Jordan, and the border thereof, this was the inheritance of the children of Reuben after their families, the cities and the villages thereof. Now, there is a phrase that is going to tie all three of these messages together, pointing to that ungodly inheritance. And it is verse number 15 starts off with that phrase. It says, and Moses gave, okay? And Moses gave. Specifically, this is the 10th time that God has made absolutely certain to show us that this was not his 
plan. This was as a result of human reasoning this decision came about. So we see the reasoning behind our title of it being an ungodly inheritance. The Ruminites, what they are going to receive, their inheritance is laid out for us from between verses 16 and 21. Again, we've covered this before. We're not going to go into it deeply, but I do want to show you the map. Miss Cindy loves the map. Here comes our map. So we have, this is Reuben's area right here. You see Heshbon here. You see Aurora here. This is the limitation. This is the, the, the Dead Sea right here. This is basically, there's no, this thing has no real purpose other than it is a picture of death. Here's the, the, uh, the Jordan River that is the delineating, separating line. So here's where Reuben is selecting for himself and what he's going to receive or they are going to receive. So we see this ungodly inheritance. And we go back to the children of Israel and we recognize the fact that what we're seeing is they, this all took place as they had returned back to the border of Canaan. Now remember, they had been, because of their rebellion, God had pushed them back out into the wilderness. And they spent 40 years wandering through the wilderness. That generation died off. And what we saw of the 603,550 men that went out into that wilderness, we know only two of them will return. So 603,548 will die in the wilderness. But now this next generation has come and they reach this point in time where they've come right up to the point of receiving their gift. And we've reviewed it before in, in our book, and as we studied through the book of Exodus, and as we've re re reviewed also in the book of Joshua, the fact that this, um, this image of what God's plan was. Now, though we've covered it, I want to get us to look at it a little bit more specifically today because it's foundational for what we have to understand about the choice that the two and a half tribes are going to make. So all three of the messages that are coming up are going to use the foundation of what we're getting ready to cover. So God intended for them all to enjoy the land that he had prepared for them. As we mentioned, the initial promise of this land was given to Abraham. Now, later on, 650 years later, that same promise is going to be given to the Israelites' new representative, which is Moses. At this point in time at the burning bush, this is when God's going to reaffirm that he's going to give them this land. We see in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. What a comforting phrase to hear from our Creator. So not only does he know their sorrows, we hear that he does, comforting us in that respect, but not only does he know, but guess what? He cares about our sorrows, and not only does he care, but he actually is going to work to deliver us from our sorrows. What we saw with the Israelites is they are always a picture of the individual believer. We see them in captivity in Egypt. They are caught up in a world pictured in Egypt. It was a picture of our world. And here they were in bondage to sin, but God sent a deliverer because he loved them, because he heard their cry. And when you and I are lost and we cry out to God, man... He hears our cry, and guess what? He sent a deliverer 2,000 years ago on the cross, and that deliverance comes by way of Christ, and we call out to him. So we see this beautiful thing of the love of God. Moses is a picture. He is a type of Christ. Now listen to verse number 8. And I am come down to deliver them. I love this. And the fact that he says, I am come down to deliver them. I'm going to use a human proxy, but guess what? I'm coming out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Pizzabites. All of them are there. And so we can clearly see God's plan for the twelve. The plan remains the same all the way up to the border for all that 40 years. This is the plan. They suffered the exile because of rebellion. 
There's this instance of rebellion that was in them. And guess what? When we get right here to the precipice of getting back into Canaan, they're right there at the border. And here it becomes the point of departure. Two and a half tribes will not receive what God intended for them. Numbers 32, verses 1 through 5. Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Jazir and the land of Gilead, that Gilead, remember that word, Gilead, the land of Gilead, that behold, the place was a place for cattle. The children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spake unto Moses and Eleazar the priest and unto the princes of the congregation, saying, Adaroth and Dibon and Jazer and, and Nimrah and Heshbon and Eliah and Shebam and Nebo and Ben, even the country which the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle. Thy servants have cattle. Did you know? We're cattlemen, man. This works out. Wherefore, said they, if we have found grace in thy sight, not in God's sight, in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for a possession and bring us not over Jordan. We know, and we've heard it all this time, that God has something for us, but you know what? We don't want it. We're good. We'll take what we see. And then after negotiating with Moses that the only way they can get it is if they'll go and they'll fight and they'll help to win Canaan. Well, after they all agree to this, Moses basically makes a decree. He says, hey, listen, this is what we're going to do. And he tells all of his leadership, Numbers 32, verses 28 through 29. So concerning them, Moses commanded Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the chief fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And Moses said, notice this again, it's always Moses. Moses said unto them, If the children of Gad and the children of Reuben will pass with you over Jordan, every man armed to battle before the Lord, and the land shall be subdued before you, then ye shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. You're going to give them what they asked for. Now, keep in mind that this decision was, 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 uh, uh, was made without consulting God. There is no instance where we see any kind of point, one point in time where he checks with the Lord about this. Interestingly, also up to this point, and I don't know necessarily what it means, but Reuben and Gad, all the way through this chapter, starting off in verse number 1, it isn't until verse 33 that Manasseh actually shows up. So it seems to be Reuben and Gad, Reuben and Gad, Reuben and Gad, Reuben and Gad. Now, the son, the, the, the tribe of Manasseh is split up into two halves, one of them being Machir. This is one of, one of Joseph's sons. And it may be, and I don't know, this is my conjecture, since we haven't heard anything but Reuben and Gad through the whole time, maybe Machir is just sitting over on the side and he's listening and they're negotiating. He's like, man, that sounds pretty sweet, man. This is a nice place. Maybe at the last second he's like, hey, can I, Moses, can I get on that little deal there? Give me a little bit of that land as well. Maybe that's what happened, I don't know. But now in verse 33, he shows up. And Moses gave unto them, all the way from 1 to 32, there's no mention of them, and to the children of Gad, and to the children of Reuben, and unto the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sahon, king of the Amorites, and the king of Og, king of Bashan, the land with the cities thereof, and the coast, even the cities of the country round about. And so with that history firmly established, we understand that, listen, God had a plan, and that plan has been subverted by human will. So now, uh, having that understanding, let's get ourselves acquainted with the tribe of Reuben. Now again, it's through the progenitor of Reuben. There's that word. Um, the progenitor of Reuben, right? Reuben is a, uh, that, 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 that name has a meaning. It means behold a son. Behold a son. That's how it directly translates. Now Reuben is the firstborn of a woman named Leah 
and Jacob. Jacob later, and again, his name will later be chained to Israel. Genesis 29, 32, we hear of his birth. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she, for she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now, listen to this phrase, Now therefore my husband will love me. Ouch. Ouch. That gives us an insight into the relationship that exists between Jacob and Leah. The circumstances surrounding Reuben's birth. This is the family he's born into. So listen, Jacob had been deceived by his father-in-law, Laban. Laban had tricked him into marrying Leah. He had his heart set on Rachel. Man, that's his whole thing. I'm working for Rachel. I'm working for Rachel. I'm working for Rachel. The last minute he slipped in Leah and it's like, oh man, he was not happy. So what happens is, because later now, later on, he's going to end up marrying Rachel as well. So he has two wives. That's not God's plan. But listen, God works through, you know, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. God can use bad decisions to do great things. But what we see is the fact that what's interesting enough is the fact that Jacob actually, Jacob actually comes from a, um, a deceitful background as well, right? So remember Isaac. Isaac had two sons. He had Jacob and Esau. And what happened was Jacob decided to usurp the firstborn rights from Esau. So there was deception there. So then he gets deceived, interestingly enough. But now what happens, eventually he marries Rachel. And she will, uh, but because of the fact that his heart is so sold onto Rachel, and Leah has been just, I don't know what you call, neglected, I guess. God blesses her to be incredibly fertile. She gives six kids of the 12 come from Leah. And you've got a little, a little thing up here on the little, uh, what do you call it? It's a diagram, I guess. So here we have Jacob. You have Leah. Leah has a, a servant. Her name is Zilpah. So she has six children herself. Zilpah will have two of those kids, Gad and Asher. Bilhah, this is Rachel's servant. She has Dan and Naphtali. And guess what? At the end, guess what? Rachel eventually will have children. That'll be Joseph and Benjamin. So what we find is Joseph, when he's born, boy, he is like the favorite son, man. He is like, oh, you know, like the sun just shines beams of light on him. It's just a wonderful thing. So Reuben is born into this family uh, where there's a lot of issues that are going on, okay? What we find is the fact that his family is literally littered with things like infighting. There's jealousies and there's deceit. And you and I, you know, we may think that our family's jacked up, but I mean, let me tell you, this was a jacked up family. They had some stuff going on. But what we find is the fact that to get an insight into the Reubenites, the, for the, 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 the projection from them is going to come from their forefather, from Reuben. So let's look at some of Reuben's strengths. Keep in mind the dynamic that's taking place in this family. There is a lot of stuff going on. There's favoritism and things of this nature. There are hurt feelings. There's frustration. There's deceit. All this is swirling around. So there's a situation that involves Reuben that is going to give us an insight into kind of some indicators of his personality. We're going to get to see kind of who this guy, really who he is. And so what we do is we uh, understand that the setting for this is what happens eventually is Rachel's going to have a child. She's going to have Joseph. And when she has him, man, I'm telling you what, like I said, it is, it is a big day. It's a really big day. And not only is it a big day in the fact that this is Rachel who's the favorite, but also, unfortunately... Jacob is not good at holding back the fact that he has favorites. He is all about Joseph worship, man. He just thinks he's got all that in a bag of chips. He makes him a special coat of many colors, and man, he is really, really lifted up. Now, because of this, his brothers are all getting jealous. They're all getting frustrated. Then on top of that, Joseph has a dream. And in the dream, 
the dream reveals all of his brothers serving him. And so he goes, hey, guys, guess what? I know you guys already hate me, but guess what? Turns out one day you're all going to bow down to me and you're going to serve me too. And they're like, oh, we got to kill this guy. I mean, they're like, no, that, that ain't going to happen, man. We already don't like you. Now we like you even less. So what happens? They literally get to a point in time where, you know what? They're ready to kill him. I mean, they literally are. They are literally planning to take his life. Genesis 37, verses 19 through 22. And they said one to another, Behold, the dreamer cometh. Notice they don't call him by his name. What happens when people shift out of, uh, into a situation where they're willing to hurt somebody? What the first thing they do is they take away their identity. They no longer see them as a person. How can somebody go have an abortion? Because guess what? It's just a clump of cells. It's not a person. You de-emphasize the humanity of the individual. It makes it easier to destroy them. So they call him the dreamer. And it says here, Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into, into, into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him. And we shall see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him up out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. This is good. Look at what Reuben's doing. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. So Reuben does the right thing. Reuben hates Joseph too. He's also frustrated, but he's not so blinded by his emotions and by his feelings that he would allow them to actually kill his brother. Reuben showed mercy in this moment while none of Joseph's other brothers were willing to show any mercy at all. So this points us to his strengths. What do we see? We see, first of all, he's conscientious. We also see that he's merciful. We see also that he's a leader, that he has influence, and also that there's a level of accountability that he has to his father. So these are some very admirable traits. Notice what he said in verse 23, to deliver him into his father again. There is a, there is a connection there where he feels a responsibility. Now, interestingly enough, this moral failure of these forefathers of the Israelites takes place in the exact same wilderness outside of Canaan that the future failure is going to take place as well. But at this point, to give you an idea, just for, for us to have a kind of a clue of what's taking place, Reuben at this time is about 23 years old, and Joseph is about 18 years old. Okay, So this is where we're at. Genesis 37, verse 23 through 25. It says, And it came to pass, when Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat and his coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him and cast him into a pit, and, put, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And to show you how cold-blooded his brothers are, these guys are bad news. They really, really are. They don't tell Reuben what's going on. But listen to this. So he's in a pit. They've thrown him in the hole. There's no water in it, so he can communicate. He's probably yelling and screaming out of the pit. And listen, verse number 25. And they sat down to eat bread. Well, let's just have lunch. So they sit down, and they're eating and laughing with his jacket. They're like, <laughs> yeah, dreamer, how's it going down there? <laughs> Pass the bread. <laughs> this is what they're going on. This is what they're doing. This is, and they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites from Gilead. And their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh going to carry it. Notice this. Look at the wording. Down to Egypt. Remember, Egypt is always a picture of the world. People either come up out of Egypt or they go down. There's nowhere else in the Bible. No one goes up. Egypt is a picture of the world. It's a picture of going down. So it says here, and they cast him into that pit. And so here they've eaten their food. See, so these brothers minus Reuben have sold their little brother into Egypt. Slavery. Interestingly enough, those slavers 
come from Gilead. That is the land that one day they are going to ask and request for themselves. And one day they later on, about 500 some years, are going to fall back into slavery in the land of Gilead, interestingly enough. And the Reuben returns to get his brother out of the pit because he doesn't know what's going on. So he's like, okay, I'm going to go dig him out. I'm going to take him back to dad. Genesis 37, 29. And Reuben returned unto the pit and behold, Joseph was not in the pit and he rent his clothes. He's freaking out. Oh, what's going on? Where, where's Joseph? And his brothers lied to him. Ah, man, we don't know what happened to him. He's just gone. Don't know exactly what's taking place. And so now he's faced with a reality that he's got to face what it is that they've done because he's a part of this. He threw him in the pit. He, as far as he knows, he just disappeared. So now he's brought to a place where he has to make a choice. Reuben has to decide. Will he join his brothers and lie to their father? Or will he own up to what it was that he's done? So even though Reuben has a desire to do the right thing in his heart, Right? He desires to do the right thing. When the pressure is placed upon him, as opposed to owning up to what they've done, he will ultimately choose to serve himself. And this is the daily struggle of the Christian. Will we serve God or will we serve ourselves? As children of God, we are called to deny ourselves. We're called to deny our fleshly desires and surrender our lives to be vessels for the glory of God, that He would use our life, that He would receive glory. You see, character is doing the right thing no matter the circumstances. A missionary that goes to the field and is willing to risk their life to put everything on the line says, you know what, I don't care what the government of this country says or what anyone else says, I will stand upon the Word of God. As we look at hate speech, the Bible becoming hate speech around the world, there will come a day when I can tell you when we stand in America and we will preach the Word of God and we will be arrested for it. But you know what? We've got to be willing to say, look, I don't care. Our job is to honor the Lord. And in the end, He's the one that has to be pleased. If we're preaching in prison, if we're preaching out of prison, it does not matter because ultimately if God's pleased, because we're going to stand upon the truth. So here in this moment, He bows down. And what happens to most people, unfortunately, they're very much like Reuben. They may, in in their heart's desire, want to do the right thing. Man, I know I want to do the right thing. I want to honor God. I want to do all this. But when the pressures of life starts to weigh on that individual, more often than not, we tend to serve ourselves. And we can see traits of Reuben in us. Later in Reuben's story, he'll become remorseful. There's a point in time where where Joseph has, 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 has risen the ranks in Egypt and eventually is serving on the royal staff. And, and, and his brothers are all brought before him, and they don't know it's him. And they're all freaking out. And man, I'm telling you, as, as, as everything's kind of coming together, oh boy, it all comes back onto Reuben, and he starts feeling overwhelmed by the moment, and remorse just weighs on him heavily. Genesis 42, 22, he says, And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child. And you would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. Man, we're getting what we deserve, guys. This is a mess that we made ourselves. And so we see Reuben has some redeeming qualities. There's some stuff about Reuben that's good, man. He desires to do the right thing. We saw that he has con- he's conscientious, he's merciful, he's a leader, he's got influence, he's accountable to his father. We can see that Reuben had potential to be a really good guy. I think in his heart, he wanted to be that guy that he could see him being. But sadly, potential is not always realized. And that brings us to his weaknesses. Let's take a look at those. 
First, we get a glimpse at those as we go through Joseph's story, no doubt, where Reuben would vacillate between doing the right thing and doing what was convenient. But unfortunately, it will get even worse because this self-serving attitude that Reuben has Listen, though he has admirable qualities, though he does some things that are right, ultimately, and when it comes down to it, it's his willingness to compromise on what is right in order to fulfill himself that will be literally the theme of his life. Now, we saw this in his willingness to lie to his father, but listen, it's going to be really spotlighted when he later betrays his father at a whole other level. Genesis 35, we see it recorded for us. At this point in time, Rachel, Jacob's favorite She's passed away. And when she dies, he takes her back to Bethlehem to bury her. And while he's away, her servant, remember this is Rachel's servant. Rachel, her name is Bilhah. And what will happen is, you know what's going to happen? Reuben goes, you know what? I'm going to go get with her. And he literally goes and sleeps with his, I mean, no stepmom, basically. This is what he does. He defiles and attacks his father, considering the fact that, listen, I don't know why he would do this, but perhaps it's, it's out of spite. Maybe it's because Rachel was so loved, and now here's this vulnerability. He can take advantage of it. This is what he does. But what we find is the fact that, listen, bottom line is he knew it was wrong. There is no doubt in his mind that it is wrong. Otherwise, he would have done it when his dad was there. He does it in hiding, not only to to be defiant of, of his father, but ultimately defiant of Almighty God. And yet, though he knows it's wrong, he will willfully choose to do so serving his flesh and his lustful desires over serving his father or his God. And this, listen, this brings us to Reuben's recurring weaknesses. What do we continually see? He is willing to compromise his own principles and ultimately serves his fleshly desires over anything else. Wow. Last week, we heard about Jacob uh, as Jacob was sharing with us or, or talking to the Levites, right? As he was giving Simeon and Levi their inheritance in Genesis 49, he was talking to them about what he would give them on his deathbed. And we heard some hard things. Well, listen to what he says about Reuben. Genesis 49, verses 3 through 4. Jacob speaking to Reuben. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellence of, uh, excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Man, that sounds pretty good. You're like, hey, Reuben, you got some strengths, brother. Let me spotlight the strengths that you have, the potential that's in you as a man to become who God created you to be. You have got tremendous potential if you choose to have it. You've got it, Reuben. This is your opportunity. Deny yourself. Don't follow your selfish desires. Commit yourself to God. Reuben could have maintained that birthright as the firstborn. He was called to do it. He had the ability to do so, but he had spiritual weakness. He was unwilling to do the right thing. Listen to what he says, verse 4. So he starts pointing out the strengths. And now 4, what does he point out? Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then thou defilest it. He went up to my couch. You personally attacked me. You personally attacked defied me. Reuben, you are so led by your flesh that you ignored what you knew was right to do, and you willfully defied me, and you willfully defied our God. And this sums up Reuben's life, sadly, where, listen, he he will surrender what's best in order to fulfill himself and his desires in the moment. Does this sound like anyone we know? 
Maybe our children, our spouse, our, 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 our brother, our sister, right? Ourselves. Where we'll give up on what's best to fulfill ourselves in the moment. This is the traits that Reuben carries. This is the traits that he passes on in his family. And you see, this is one of the greatest dangers of living in a consumer-based society like we do today. Because, listen, I'm telling you, your wildest desires, no matter what they may be, no matter how devoid or crazy they might be, listen, they're flaunted before our faces. They're made available to us in almost any way, shape, or form. We're offered the very things that we should not want, and we're given easy access to them. There is an app for virtually everything you could possibly imagine, every sinful desire you could possibly concoct in your mind. There's somebody out there trying to provide it for you. Sin on demand. From pornographic, pornographic fantasies to literally loveless physical encounters with somebody, a stranger who's arranged through the Internet. People can lust for something, see it on the phone, see it on the TV. They can lust for it, not be able to afford it, buy it on credit, and have it in their house the next day. That's the world we live in. And so this is what we're struggling with. All the while, with any one of those situations, people thinking, you know, I know I shouldn't. But. I, I know I shouldn't. But. This is what would have been running through Reuben's mind time and time and time again. And people today are so consumed by it. The lust of the world, the lust of the flesh. The problem is, man, the greater, the, 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 the draw now is that it's greater than it's ever been. And it's not the fact that people are more sinful now than they've ever been. It's just a matter of access. Yeah. It's all around us. Yeah. We are inundated with it. We see it if we don't want to see it. My goodness gracious, things will pop up on your phone or pop up on your screen while you're working. You're like, where, did that, where does that even come from? Why I, I have my things pop up on my phone. I don't know how to work my phone that well. So I just go, honey, yeah, fix that. Get rid of that. And she's like, okay. Whatever she does, some kind of magic. But the point is this. You don't want to see it, but yet you're still inundated with it. Just imagine if you're searching for it, how easy it is to find. And we've got young people right now that are connected to these devices, and they are, man, it is just pouring filth into their hearts, luring them into, into destruction. And it's, 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 it's heartbreaking. Why do you think we're always harping on holiness? We're always harping on sanctification. We're always harping on separation. Because that's the only way to protect ourselves. Listen to what God says, 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Wherefore, come out from among them. Listen, come out from among the world. And be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And listen to that phrasing. The next thing he says, and I will receive you. Remember, this whole thing is about Canaan. What's Canaan? Canaan is the picture of the promised land. A place of fellowship with God. A place of holiness. A place of, of walking with God in love and peace and joy. What our track says. That's what it's all about. And so he's saying, listen, separate yourself from the world because that's going to keep you out of Canaan. I want to receive you. Look, I want you to come across Jordan. I'll make a way. I'll part the waters. You just walk across on dry land. Come here and be with me. I'll wipe out your enemies. I'll do it all. You just come. And look, look what salvation. Christ does it all. We don't have to work our way to salvation. We don't have to earn our way to salvation. We don't have to be perfect. We're not. 
The Bible says, for there is none righteous, no, not one, nobody. So we're all in the same problem. We're all in the same pit that we're stuck in. But God's done all the work. He just offers us a loving hand to restore us. And all we have to do is deny our flesh. And then once we've received Him, how do we thank Him? By falling back into the world. How? Because our flesh is well fed. Our flesh is very well fed. And whichever one you feed will win. Two dogs in a fight. Starve one, tie it to a post, don't give it water or food. Feed the other one sumptuously. Lots of water. Let this one get close to death. Let him fight. Who's going to win? you got people that are spiritually starved to death. Though they have a banquet right in their home, they will consciously walk past it day after day and be starving to death. Not because God doesn't make it available. Because they make a conscious choice not to eat. But they'll feed on their phone. They'll feed on the internet. They'll feed on every piece of garbage that the world can produce. And they will swallow it up in big gobbling gulps. And boy, their flesh is mighty and strong. And they wonder, man, what's wrong? Why don't I feel close to God? Why does my spiritual life feel so empty? Why do I feel like I'm always striding, fighting battles? Why is it always this same struggle time and time again? Because we're not surrendered. Because we're feeding our flesh. Because if we're not careful, we can become just like Reuben, having all the potential in the world and yet never fulfilling it. God created us all for something great. He wants to use these lives for His glory. That's why we're here. If it was just about saving you, why would He keep you on the planet? He would save you and kill you and take you out of here. But He left us here. In John 17, when Jesus is praying for the disciples, He says, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I just want you to keep them from the evil. Because they need to be in the world if the world is to hear the truth. They're to be lights in the darkness. And all of us, if you're saved, you're a light. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's your purpose. Don't lose sight of your purpose. Next, let's look at Reuben's legacy. What is his life, his testimony? What does it say of him? Well, we know that he had a desire to do the right thing. We know that he was willing to stand up even and to speak his mind about doing the right thing. That is, until the consequences of life became too uncomfortable. For you see, in the end, (laughs) what really mattered most to Reuben was Reuben. What really mattered most to Reuben was Reuben. And his love of self-superseded family, friends, and even God. And in the Reubenites, we see the same kind of thinking Choosing for themselves something that's not what God intended. God wanted something for them. He set it aside for them. He protected it. He sanctified it. He had it there saying, this is what I have. Do not try to get settled in the wilderness. I'm going to give you manna. That manna is going to just, all it's going to do is it's just going to sustain you. That's what it says. The Bible gave it to them. Sustain them, not to make them happy. And what did they do? They fried it. They reshaped it. They made it into pizzas and tacos and honey buns, anything they possibly reshaped it all they could but it always just tasted like manna. And they were like, ah! 
after a matter of months, it's just same old dry manna. It's always the same. Because God's going, I don't want you to get happy here. The whole point is to get you there. So don't try to get satisfied in the world because guess what? It'll never satisfy. No matter how much of the world you eat, guess what? You'll always be hungry for more because that's the way our flesh is. There's satisfaction in only one place in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, ultimate satisfaction. That's the picture. So we see this desire that they had to fulfill themselves in Numbers 32.5. Wherefore said they, if we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for a possession and bring us not over Jordan. Knowing what was right, but denying it in order to fulfill themselves. Are we like Reuben? If we're honest with ourselves, are we like him? So consumed with what we want that we are willing literally to disregard what God has for us in order to fulfill our worldly lusts. I think like Reuben, most people want to do the right thing. Most people want to honor God. Most people want to be a godly individual. They want to have a good testimony for the Lord. And even when they go, even when they mess up, even when they do something wrong, they're remorseful like Reuben was. They feel bad about what they've done. See, this battle that takes place within us, it's a battle between the flesh and the spirit, right? We hear about this to the, the, to the two sides of us. There's, there's, two, there's two yous inside of you if you're a born-again child of God. There's the one that comes from Christ, and there's the one that comes from Adam. Adam is the flesh. Well, guess what? Christ is the spirit. Which one will you allow to lead? Listen to this in Galatians 5.17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit. There's a battle, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other. They're in constant battle. And because of the constant battle, and because you won't pick which side you're going to be on, so that you cannot do the things that you would. You cannot function. The Bible says you cannot serve God and mammon. We cannot do it. It is an impossibility. Though Reuben didn't have the indwelling spirit of God, he was still choosing. He was choosing what God wanted, and he was choosing between what he wanted. And he always allowed it to be what he wanted to supersede what God wanted. Sadly, his legacy to his father and with God ultimately was one of rebellion. Here's a man who had the right kind of heart, who had some character, who wanted to do the right thing, and yet he was seen, and his testimony and his legacy is one of, of rebellion. Because even though he wanted to do the right thing and warred within himself, can I tell you, in the end, he chose his desires over God's. Guess what? You and I, we're all leaving a legacy. We're all leaving a legacy of what our life says of God and what our life says to those around us. Do they see Christ in us? Do they see surrender in us or do they see rebellion masked in religion or the right package? We put on the suit, we put on the tie, we carry ourselves a Bible. But as Jesus said, their hearts are far from me, their lips. But know what matters. It's not what you say, it's what you do. And ultimately, Reuben's, Reuben's actions spoke for themselves. Now, I hope that his legacy is not our legacy. But as Laodicean church age people, people that are living with all the trappings of this world, 
can I tell you that for more and more people, his legacy is, is their legacy. Caught up, man. Caught up. God's called us to be holy. And yet, Christians of today are utterly and completely obsessed with being happy. Man, travel, lifestyle, possessions, wealth. And none of these things mean anything to God. They'll all burn up with a fervent heat. You will not take anything with you. All this stuff that we try to gather, it does not matter. The only eternal things are the souls of men. Are we investing? Are we laying up treasures in heaven? Or are we so consumed with the earth that we don't even think about God's intention for us? If we're not very, very careful, the focus that's the world can become our focus. And we can look just like everybody else. Reuben did not realize the impact that his poor choices and his decisions would one day have. But can I tell you? Unwittingly, his choices left his descendants with an ungodly inheritance. Can I tell you? As your pastor, I don't want that for you. I don't want that for us. I want for God to be able to see what we've done with this life that he's given us and the people that watch us and the people that follow us and that they would look at our name and they would remember our life and they would say, you know what? They left me. They left me a godly inheritance. And if we're not careful, we'll leave ungodly, having the best intentions, but our actions will speak differently. Let's not be like Reuben. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today. For what you've shown us, Lord, what you've shown me, if no one else. God, I have a desire to leave a godly inheritance. But Lord, I know if I'm not careful, it can be the opposite. Lord, help us all realize our accountability to you, recognizing, Father, that there is a purpose and a plan to this life that is so far beyond what this world will tell us. Help us, God, to have a godly perspective, a heavenly perspective, that our life and our choices will be focused on those things that are eternal. The Bible says, so to the flesh, reap corruption. Oh, but so to the spirit and reap life everlasting. And the next verse says, and be not weary in well-doing, for we shall reap if we faint not. Galatians 6, 8 and 9. Lord, I do pray that you help us to be mindful to sow to the Spirit that our, our efforts and energies and attentions would be set on those things which are godly. So Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this word. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, those that are struggling, Lord, even now. There's some here that are wrapped up in sin. Some here that are broken. Somebody else outside has hurt them. They're bitter. They're angry. They're, they're hopeless. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to set their eyes and affections on things above because the lies of this world will tell us there is no hope. Oh, but God, with you there's always hope. So I do pray, Father, that you'd help my brothers and sisters to set their eyes on you, 
to be fed spiritually, to be strengthened for the days ahead, that we might be concerned with what our testimony will speak to the life around us. And for those that may be here today or maybe online and you say, look, I don't know where I stand with God. Listen, I don't know where you are. 21 years ago, someone shared the gospel with me. They told me this simple truth that I was lost. I was on my way to hell, but Christ loved me. God loved me. And he sent Jesus to die on the cross, giving me a way, though I was unworthy. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anybody. No matter how far you've fallen, no matter how broken you may be, Christ is ready to restore you. He did the work on the cross, and He's willing to receive you and restore you even now. God created a bridge from this earth to heaven with two pieces of wood. And if you will not cross that bridge, you will have no other way. You will burn in an eternity of hell. Not because you're worse than anybody else, but simply because you will reject the gift. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and life, and no man come to the Father but by me. If you come by way of anything else, you will not make it. It is Christ and Christ alone. And if you've never received Christ, you have an opportunity today to receive Him. There's no ceremony involved. There's no magic prayer involved. It's a broken heart calling out to a loving God who's ready to restore the relationship that's been broken. He waits on us. All we have to do is respond. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a gift. To receive a gift, all you have to do is choose to receive it. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to lead you in prayer. If you want to receive that gift, you have that chance right now. Repeat after me in your heart and mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I'm amazed, but I understand that you love me. And though I've failed in so many ways, you're willing to save me. Lord, by faith, I come today surrendering my life to you. God, would you pay the price for my sins? Would you restore me from my lost condition? God, would you come into my heart? And would you save my soul? Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen. Heads